Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, April 28, 2019. Spring has sprung. Almost. It's chilly outside. It's chilly, but it's very green. Yeah, that's right. The crab apple blossoms are out. Overgrown almost. You snap your fingers and it's overgrown. It's right. crazy. It's, it, it's like a um, rainforest jungle, mm. as you like to say. Yeah. <laughs> Do I like to say Here, that? Yes. <laughs> I, I said that? Yeah, you have said that. It's like a rainforest. Yeah, so what's important to us is that uh, we're on the verge of Zeke's birthday. Zeke's 30th uh, birthday. You're giving it away on May 1st. It's coming up. May 1st. May the 1st Day. of May, yes. So that yes. Will, that's going to be Wednesday. Happy birthday, Zeke. Happy birthday, Zeke. We'll probably be released on that day. And uh, okay. made many happy returns. Exactly right. Many, many more. We'll give you a call, Zeke. To come. Discuss this more in depth. Right. All right. But we had a big week. A big week. Yeah, this we're is, really too tired to talk. This is almost, this never happens. <laughs> never happens. We saw two shows. Two shows this week. Two shows. And so... Uh, well, as predicted, we went to Kiss Me Kate. That's right. So let's start with that. We'll leave the other one for a surprise. As predicted, we went to Kiss Me Kate on... I don't even remember. What day was that? That was Thursday. Thursday. Oh, yes. Roundabout. Yes, we went to Kiss Me Kate. And uh, Kiss Me Kate... Uh, a revival. Right. So let's just set the stage. So Kiss Me Kate is a Cole Porter musical that was written in 1948 which was a huge hit at the time. Cole Porter's... Not Cole Porter. Yeah, Cole Porter, right, yes. Cole Porter's answer to Oklahoma. Oklahoma, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Which allegedly was changing how musicals looked. Yes. You know, going from just random stringing together right. of songs with uh, well, you know, let me, let me minimal, come back. nonsensical dialogue. Let me come back to that in just a second, because oh. that's a good point. But let me just finish setting the stage. There's a revival in the late 1990s that we saw... 1999. Yeah, the entire family, for those not French, uh, featuring Brian Stokes Mitchell, a well regarded uh, Broadway baritone, and uh, Marin Mazzi, who sadly passed away this year, but she was wonderful. Kiss Me Kate was a great production. Yes. And and now we have uh, this production, which is the new revival uh, starring Kelly O'Hara. And Kelly O'Hara, of course, is the star of everything these days. We're all the revivals of musical comedies, including most recently Brigadoon, and she was wonderful in that. And uh, here's what's interesting about this. Kiss me. Let me say, first of all, let's get this out of the way. I loved it. But who's it. the baritone? I'll get that in a second. I loved it. What do you think of it? What do you think of it? I thought it was uh, amazing. Yeah, it was great. And I was on record saying I wasn't looking forward to it. On record. Because it was just, you know, another revival. Another opening, another show. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And to tell you the truth, Kelly O'Hara was just ethereal. Yes. I mean, she was funny. The voice was, you know, unbeatable. Uh, Just... A wonderful experience. But it was a great production. Well, here, here's why I want to come back to your point about Oscar Hammerstein for the moment. Because uh, the, the the reputation is that Roger Hammerstein obviously connected plot to music, but did it in, in, in a very often moving, uh, gentle, some might even say sentimental way. And Cole Porter, when you quote it as the answer to Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cole his Porter, answer. His answer. He was reputed. He was brilliant, brilliant songwriter, wrote a lot of great songs, all very clever, uh, acerbic even. And so his answer would be sharp, sharper. And that's the way it was interpreted. That said, 
I'm reading from a review which I think I agree with by a fellow named Robert Hoffler of The Rap. And here's what he says. He says, um, uh, well, Cole Porter has suddenly grown a heart as big as Rogers and Hammerstein. Right? Uh, why is that? It comes early in the show and sung by, and this is something else you just said, Kelly O'Hara in this revival. It makes the next two and a half hours glow with a wistful longing and sweet desperation of a diva in love. Her masterful rendition of So in Love is so heartfelt that we may overlook everything else in the show if we had it. But it goes on to give a very good review of the show. And she gives a performance, and her singing is so, as he puts it, ethereal and amazing. And she does it from that very first number, So in Love, and it sets the whole musical up. Don't you think? Yes. And you know what's funny to me? And and we go to uh, shows, and I often am, I'm sitting there and saying, this is really good. Why is nobody cheering? Right. Uh, why aren't they clapping like crazy? This production, people were cheering. Going crazy. They were hooting. They were clapping. They loved it. Um, at the end, it was... You know, just a, a heartfelt standing ovation. You know, as soon as, you know, they got to the finale, people jumped up. Right. And were clapping. And, and, and you know, you mentioned you were, you were getting to the co-star. Will Chase is the co-star. He's very good uh, in the Brian Stokes Mitchell role and the role of, you know, they're two warring thespians who have been married and divorced and they're back and forth. And she's maybe she wants out of the showbiz life. Maybe she wants nothing to do with him. But the song is that she's so in love with him. And the way they set it up, and this was, to me, a, the biggest kind of change they made. The people did this, and we noted that Scott Ellis is the director, and we'll come back to that. Uh, they know who the star of the show is. So what they changed is that so in love is a duet, generally. Here, they sang half the song together. Will Chase left the stage. She thought about it a minute, and she sings the final bit herself. And that's what sets the whole musical off. This show's about her. And... Um, so much so, so much so, and I'm, you know, we didn't discuss this, but I'm sure you noticed this. At the end of the show, and you're absolutely right, people are going crazy the whole show. And it's a For a revival. For a revival. And, and look, we should say. 70 years it old. It is as any, much as anything else, it's brilliant music and it's brilliant dance. It's unbelievable dance, don't you think? Yeah. Which was not true of the revival in 1999. Oh, is that right? Yes. Okay. And, uh, but uh, this was really fun. And, of course, Fosse was in the movie version. Bob Fosse. Uh, and we're all thinking about Fosse and Fosse dancing right. and jazz hands and everything uh, lately. So I don't know if that influenced uh, how people were thinking about the choreography, but it was uh, pretty outstanding. And, it, and was... it had key moments that you just love, like Too Darn Hot. Too, Too Darn Hot brought the roof down. Oh, and you know, and there's other show, this other song which we never thought much of called Tom, Dick, and Harry, which they... Wait a minute. I love Tom, Dick, and Harry. But you never saw a dance number like this on Tom, Dick, and Harry. No, but if you if you go to YouTube yeah. and conjure it up from the movie, yeah. Fosse's in that number. Yeah, but it's not as good as this. And he's pretty amazing. Is he? Yes. Right. Well, in any event, they had a new choreographer here, and I should mention Corbin Blue is in this. He's not known to us, but known to a lot of people who's a great dancer. He's known to me. Oh, is he? Yes. Okay, good we to you. We saw him. If you say in so. In Holiday Inn. Oh, All right. Oh All right. So in any event, but my what I was saying is, so it's fantastic. And, and at the end, the final moment, and I'm not giving too much away that she finds her love and they, they work it out. She turns to the audience and she just pats her heart. I'm sure you saw that. In the final moment. 
And um, what seems like a nothing gesture or a very theatrical gesture, and it registers entirely. Yeah. The audience has such a connection with her. That's all she has to do. And they bring down the curtain. I mean, it's it's great. Right. And and they, they change a few lyrics. Yeah, right. And uh, change the staging mm-hmm. to make it more of a war between the two. Right. Uh, man and woman, two different stars, uh, rather than just the taming of the shrew, rather than wrangling a wife into submission. It was more like, you know, she was impossible. She was mean. She was annoying. It's finding the humanity of her. Right. And, and not the subjugation wh- of her. But it, and at the end, when she does sing that line, I am ashamed that people are right, so right, simple right. Um, and, instead of women. Uh, they, they change but that. But to me, what this, the show is about, at least what the show is about now and maybe for it, it's about her choosing between her career and everything else. She has the opportunity to enter into a more conventional marriage which has a lot of obvious advantages. And she's saying, it makes a lot of sense, but I can't do it. I can't do it. She's too married to the theater. She's too, too married yeah, to the yeah, theatrical I don't think performance. that's all of it. I it's think not she all of it. Is she's in love with kind him. kind of waking up to a reality of love yeah. that was not uh, the sort of hallmark okay. card she had in mind. Yeah? Okay, fair enough. So anyway, so that was uh, great. Great. That's, that's a Surprisingly fair great. I was shocked. I was not looking forward to it, and I was so. If you get a chance, completely one go over. to that. But then, the impulsive well, half so here, of the pair. Here's the, here's okay. the deal. All right. Go ahead. I get up uh, Thursday morning. Right. Early. Early. We should say. Well, you know, we always get up at five o three, and uh, after the initial workout, um, I'm flying through the paper, yeah. and there's a review of Tootsie. Mm-hmm which I am also on record as saying I could care less about seeing. Right. And it was a fantastic review. Right. And even though I've been burned by a lot of fantastic reviews in the past couple of years, I immediately got on the computer and bought four tickets. There you go. There you go. And four tickets for this week for last night saturday night right and then you called your husband you said you're, guess you're gonna, what we're going to tootsie you were underwhelmed i think what you said to me was you're going to be mad at me because <laughs> you don't want to haul your button to new york city no you said, i wasn't no mad. yes you did you I said, was... oh okay we can do that yes right really trying to humor the little woman and then I talked uh, Granger and Nico into going right. with us, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know. Yeah, you were I, lucky they were available. We were lucky they were available. And uh, I thought it might be fun to see this partly because we haven't been seeing a lot of original musicals right. recently. Right. And uh, we've been interested in seeing some of them. We haven't quite, um, you know, done it. Right. And so we seized the opportunity. I wanted to get out of town here in Pennsylvania because it's Shadfest. Shadfest. The place is going crazy. Which is wonderful for the area. It brings in lots of business, but it is kind of overwhelming right. if you're not Shadfesting it. So, um, Shadfesting it. Yeah. 
So we our, actually our, went. Our, uh, we went into New York. But let me set the stage what? for Tootsie, because then everyone's seen the mu- seen the movie. So Everybody's she, seen it. Oh, really? Even my mother remembers it. Well, I, she's I think your mother. I was counting on. It's there are a lot of people younger than everybody your mother. Remembers Maybe everybody's it. younger. Dustin than Hoffman movie. Okay, so the, the premise of the Dustin Hoffman. First of all, Dustin Hoffman movie, a tremendously successful movie, overwhelmingly. Right. And successful. yet you feel no one remembers it. All right, I'm wrong. Okay, fine. Okay. But but the story is, and the story in the movie, and the story in the play. Is that a guy originally played by Dustin Hoffman? Uh, is an actor in New York. He's in his late thirties. He's had no success. He's very difficult. No one will work with him. And he hits on the idea: the only way he can get a part when he sees one available, and it happens to be a part for a woman. So he dresses up as a woman and, and, and gets, gets the, part. the part. He gets the part, and and it's his experience. At going to rehearsals and acting as a woman, and of course relationships develop, hilarity ensues, etc., etc., etc. It's not a true story. Oh no! But the character is to some extent based on Dustin Hoffman's own difficulty. Yeah, right. You know. He's a, he was an impossible person. Okay. <laughs> and everyone knew I was. So it's kind of an inside joke. Even when he's sitting there talking with his agent at the beginning, who's played by Sidney Pollack, the great director, and you can even see the the world weary expression on Pollack's face, having to direct Hoffman, like, "Oh, you're impossible. You're impossible. You're impossible." And he's speaking and from he the is. heart. But but it, but it, it was a fantastically successful movie. Hoffman was great. Uh, and people talked about it uh, like nobody's business. It was the early 80s. So so here we have the musical version. And what did you think of it? I thought it was, it was terrific. It was, it terrific. was terrific. It was terrific. It was terrific. And Granger and Nico loved it. Right. Also. I mean, they had a great time. Mm-hmm. And we have dragged them to random revivals and musicals. I think this was the first one that uh, Nico especially had uh, a really fun reaction to she thought it was hilarious right and to some extent to some extent you know when you go to the revivals you're kind of laughing at old 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 jokes right or jokes that are a little bit out of context yeah and uh if you're you know over 50 you get them to some extent (laughs) well (laughs) barely but this was funny i mean it was just really really funny uh so it's music was by david yasbeck who did the band's visit and, and, and the full Monty. And the full Monty. So and there you he, go. He does all kinds of Women stuff. on the verge of a nervous break. Right. Right. And uh, so the music was fun. Yeah. And amusing. Right. And the star was Santino Fontana, who you've seen in several things as have I. Uh, we saw him in the non-musical Sons of the Prophet, but he's done a lot of musical work. Um, yes, he was underwhelming, I thought, in Cinderella. Well, I the, didn't see the, that. Yeah. The recent um, Broadway production of... The, of Cinderella. But he was great. It was a, originally just a TV show. Right. He was great in this, though. Yeah. You know, I, it's hard to know how hard it is to do this, to play a woman, to, to speak in a high voice, to be persuasive. And he's singing it. He's He has a number. We were talking about this before. You're watching this, you're saying, is this going to work? Is this going to work on the stage? He's going to have to sing. He's going to be persuasive as a woman. And he has his, the first scene. And it's not too exciting until you get to the first scene where he dresses up as a woman. But that happens soon enough. And then he's, he has to deliver this number, and he starts singing. And in the middle of the song, he's saying, oh, yeah, this is going to work. Because uh, he's fantastic. Well, it's very funny because he's auditioning. He's auditioning. And he wins over um, the, uh, the, the... The producer. The producer. Um, but he wins over our audience right. as well. And he's, You are transformed right. with them, which, is, which was kind of fun. It was an amazing number. He's singing in a high register. And then in the low register, and he's back and forth, and then he's belting it out, and it's a totally persuasive number, and you forget whether he's a man or a woman, but he's persuasive enough as a woman. But you love him. Right. And you know it's going to hold, it's going to play. 
Yeah. And, and so there's a little article in the Playbill about uh, that number, mm -hmm. actually. And, oh, really? Uh, well, about working on it. Uh, they had him sing it in every possible key. And then they listened to oh, the Oh, is that playback, right? Is that right? Trying to figure out where to sing that, you know, and uh, how exactly to place it. So, uh, you know, it, it beautifully crafted in yeah. that sense. Now, I got to admit, um, choreography, eh. Yeah. You know, if you want choreography, you got to go back to well, Kiss Me Kate. Yes. But this is also directed by Scott Ellis. The same director of both things. The this guy's running back and forth to shows. We should mention the other people in it. It's Lily Cooper plays the love interest, the woman that uh, he's, Santino Fantina is very interested in. He's a, he's a star of this musical that they're both in, that he's cast in. Uh, and I'm going to try to pronounce it. Andy Gratolution. Who, From Fiasco Theater. Who we've seen in Into the Woods is unbelievably funny. He plays uh, the roommate. Yes. You know, the he's, critical, you know, he, <laughs> um, cranky roommate. Yeah. And he's fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's really a, funny. He's the and, slacker roommate. And all the humor is great. It's yes. up to date. It's sensitive to all the gender issues you yeah, think would come right. up here. Right. And... Uh, you know, they try to deal with them all. Some a little heavy-handed, as the review well, points out. Let me, but um, let me, yeah. But the, it is it is very funny. I think it can really appeal to a broad range. You know, the guy sitting next to me had to be at least ninety. Seriously, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Was, I'm not making was. a joke. He was. He was. He was very um, yeah, yeah. into it and yeah. loving it. Yeah. Really? Loving really? It. Oh yeah. Oh. Okay. He was really but, 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 but we should the say jokes. there were most of the people or a lot of people in theater were very young, much younger than the crowd we they, normally see. Yeah, very young, like forty. Right, even younger than that. <laughs> there were some people younger than that, and, and I think there can be people younger well, than that because it's uh, you know it's about life and falling in love well, and it, finding it, your place. As and it's a much great comedy. The Times in the review in the last sentence I think sums up. They say musical comedy only soars when it's fully grounded. And Tootsie, however unbelievable has its feet on the ground in a modest size 13 heel. I mean, it, it, it works in many ways because the movie worked so well. We should mention Sarah Stiles, who's in it too, and she's very good, and she is uh, his previous uh, uh, love interest, Santino Fontana's previous love interest. She's pretty oh, funny. Oh, it's his ex-wife. His ex-wife. we call that. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> is that what we call it? Yeah. And then the reviews make a big deal about Julie Halston, too, who plays the yeah, uh, producer. She plays and, and she's, slightly off base. Yeah. She's pretty funny as the wealthy, well, you know, older look, lady. When I watch this show, which I think is terrific, and I think people should see it, and to me, it, you know, I, you're tempted to compare the two things. You're tempted to, to compare Kiss Me, Kate with this, and they're just so different. This is a contemporary musical, like uh, Groundhog Day was a contemporary musical, which we enjoyed, Right. And we've seen other ones. Well, it's funnier than Groundhog Day. So, but, but I always said, oh, well, let me let me give you a, a point on that. I do think it's funnier than Groundhog Day because I thought the movie, Tootsie, was funnier than uh, the movie Groundhog Day. And I think that's what's going back. And then no, 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 it's not just that. There are terrific one-liners in this. And those were not in the oh, movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I was always, yeah. I was now, I, I got to warn people, there are four-letter words. Oh, yes. The, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny too that if I found out. If you don't like that, don't bring your ten. I was going to say the other difference is that this uh, this was something. This was a Dustin Hoffman vehicle. Groundhog Day was a Bill Murray vehicle, which tells you something. Except for one thing, you know who played the slacker friend of Dustin Hoffman in the movie? Who? Bill Murray. Ah, 
<laughs> so it tells you something about Tootsie, uh, the movie, that Bill Murray was the third Let me tell lead. you something else about yeah. this production. Yeah. It has, like, a huge financial backing. Meaning? Meaning, you know, in no other, you know, it, you know, in the review when they give the credits, yeah. I've never seen a list that long yeah. of uh, people who are backing it. Yeah. And same thing with the playbill. Well, and so, well, uh, you know, a well, the, lot of money. Yeah, they had to buy the rights. And if you look at the people listed in the playbill, they even list Dustin Hoffman as an owner of the rights. So th there's a reason this didn't get on, on Broadway for a long time. I bet people have been looking at it for a long time. Uh, so, but it's... It's fun. All right. So it's so fun. go see. Look. Worth the trip. Yeah. I mean, are people going to, you know, the funny thing, uh, Kiss Me Kate, the craziest thing about Kiss Me Kate, we're watching a, a play that was first performed 70 years ago. 70 years ago. And the reason is because of the music, honestly. The music's well, so fantastic. And the lyrics. Yeah. It's right. witty, urbane, right. adult Yeah, So I, I can't humor. say they're going to be doing Tootsie 70 years from now, but who knows. But uh, you should see them both. No, because I think a lot of the uh, this is very contemporary is very um, in the context of yeah. our time. Right. And, uh, you know, but both. It's see a both. fun, fun production. You're, that's the assignment. Just, uh, you have to see them know, both. I just love uh, Fontana's uh, interpretation here. My feeling is if Scott Ellis can direct both plays, you, the listener, can see both plays. That's, that's the way You I know, find. I've been listening to The Full Monty for years. Um, you like that? Uh, yeah, I love the music to that. So, I mean, that comes up because of Yazbek. Really? Because I, didn't Scott Ellis direct that as well? That I can't tell you. Um, so, uh, yeah, these are these, this is some, these are some high-powered guys. So those those here. scores, are, you know what the, the modern musical that I hear that the music most impresses me? Waitress. Did you ever listen to that? I have, I have listened to Waitress. Yeah. And remember that our engineer... Ellie Suttmeyer. Yeah. She's seen it a number of times. That's, she wants to see it again. That's Sarah Bareilles? Yes. She that, loves it. Let me it. tell you something. That's good music. Yeah. I mean, I'm impressed by that. And Ellie knows music. All right. So there you go. Uh, but we haven't seen it. So maybe we, we should go. Maybe we should. Uh, okay. We have, uh, we have to move on to food. Food. Okay. So here's an article we forgot to discuss last week in uh, with uh, Passover, the celebration of Passover. And it's a new book that has come out called The 100 Most Jewish Foods. And uh, it is, uh, the author is somebody named Alana Newhouse. And she is, I think, the founder of, uh, or at least uh, founder and editor-in-chief of a on, an online magazine called Tablet. Tabletmag.com, an irreverent uh, magazine, often irreverent magazine about Jewish culture. And uh, so anyway, this book is kind of fun, and it lists the 100 most Jewish foods. And, the uh, you know, the initial short list was about 400 oh, really? uh, different items. And they had to pare it down, and uh, they're including, uh, you know, holiday foods, they're including... Uh, you know, uh, trafe foods that uh, non-kosher, non-kosher. Well, but uh, you know, foods that uh, um, Jews are supposed to avoid, right. as well as embrace yeah. um, traditional foods, modern foods, um, Ashkenazi and uh, Sephardic, Sephardic right. uh, etc. And uh, so, at least it says uh, of the one hundred, deli foods have. 
50. <laughs> well, spots. of course. Okay. Of course. And there was a lot of uh, uh, arguing about uh, what would win, which makes perfect sense, Ms. Newhouse says, because Jewish texts are rooted in arguing. Right. Uh, talking about the Talmud, which is, you know, uh, all these discussions, uh, interpretations of the Torah. Uh, so why wouldn't food be the subject of discussion as well? And so, you know, they're, you know, tricky uh, things like, is coleslaw a pickle? Do you include both corned beef and pastrami? Uh, yes. Et the, answer, the answer and is yes. So ahead. forth. And, uh, you know, it's really a, um, and they have some celebrity contributions about various foods, um, including uh, Eric Repair talking about gefilte fish, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. which I guess makes some sense. And Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs self declared wasps and founders of the website Food 52 who suffer from, it says, brisket envy. And uh, they bring up that, uh, you know, in general, wasps have kind of dry, uh, unremarkable roast beef with their holiday meals as opposed to... What's the line they have there? I thought they had a good line. Wasps love their unforgiving meats just as they love stony silences at the table. There you go. Okay. That sums Uh, it up for me. Okay, so um, some other... uh, things you would expect, uh, contributions of the sacred foods of the Ashkenazi Jews, bialis, lox, seltzer, cheesecake, okay, and uh, also Chinese food. Right. Okay. Um, well, and- I, was it they said about Chinese food was kind of interesting. They said Jews probably got into Chinese food because they were on the Lower East Side or something like that. Yeah, and uh, Italian food, Polish food would be less appealing because of the pork right. sausage and meats, etc. Well, I... uh, but the Chinese food was less self-evidently trafe. What was trafe? But yes, you're it right. It was trafe, but less obviously. Less so. obviously trafe. Um, yeah. And so, of course, so that's always the big joke. Right. That, uh, the, on Christmas, the Jews are out at the Chinese restaurants. Okay. Also, hydrox. Hydrox. Yeah, that I, that was news to me. And they apparently, hydrox are kosher and Oreos or not? Because Oreos. Uh, actually used to have a little bit of lard right. in them. Which is why you had more of the white cr- creamy filling, apparently. All right. Um, and uh, then, uh, let's see, what do they say? At Oh, there's some other funny ones here, including Sweet and Low. Yes, you told me that. Invented by a Jew. Of course. Okay. And uh, well, father and son team uh, who invented it in the 50s. And it's just kind of funny uh, Ms. Newhouse remarks, people would eat meals of brisket and kugel and cheesecake, but they'd replace the half teaspoon of sugar in their coffee with sweet and low. Yes. And that people have memories of, you know, their mothers with the little pig packets in their pocketbooks. Right. Ready for any situation uh, if the restaurant didn't have it. So it's just kind of a fun list of... Uh, well, I like the headline. Foods. The headline is, what are they, chopped liver? Which is pretty much is the right headline for 100 most Jewish foods. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, look, most of those are and, Ashkenazi, but I would expect that. And, yeah. uh, and I did uh, go to the website, yeah. tabletmag.com, and, and uh, it's fun and informative uh, about all kinds of things. Food, holidays, um, even about, you know, the news. All right. Uh, so. Good. Uh, so you had something about uh, memory, I think. 
Really? Did I? Yes. Because I can't quite remember. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> That's very good, Tamsin. That's uh, clever. Using the right techniques can improve memory. This is an article from the New York Times by Adam Grant. And it starts out, um, the, the, the idea is, uh, you know, how does memory work? Can you, is it something you can learn or are you just born with? And uh, he decides you actually can learn it. And it's, at some point recently, um, Gallup partnered with Allied Breweries to create the 100 Club, offering cash and recognition to any bartender who could memorize 100 names and matching drinks. Although the biggest bonus would go to any bartender who hit 500, the organizers were skeptical that anyone would make it. Yet a few years later, a British bartender named Janice blew them away by memorizing the names and drinks of 3,000 customers. Well, look, I mean, they make the point that one of the things that distinguishes a bartender is his memory for people, and then they add... And even for their drinks. And when we raised this with our bartender at Diana's, Oraman, he said, yeah, particularly the drinks. And we yeah. said, well, what do you mean by that? He says, sometimes I can't remember a person's name or customer's name, but I remember the drink. So if someone gets me in a conversation and they say, do you know, remember so-and-so, Henry, whatever, I, I don't, doesn't register. But someone says, you know, Dewar's White Label on the rocks. And I go, oh, yeah, Dewar's White Label. I remember him. Slightly baldy. Well, <laughs> whatever, but I mean, that, right. that, that's a funny way to remember somebody. Well, and, uh, and so anyway, the article goes on to say how you can actually improve your memory. And, it, you know, the point is everybody has a great memory for something. There's something that right. your brain seizes on. The thing about the bartenders is that they get a chance to, they get a chance to memorize it and re- Test themselves on it again and again and again, but also, and that's part of the secret. Not just retest them, but use it, apply it. One of the things yeah. they talk about, and they say one of the ways to memorize things is to explain it or put it in some kind of use or quiz right. yourself. And and so think about what Armand's saying. He's remembering the drink because when he sees the person, he has to make the drink, right? And then he makes the drink, and that reinforces the memory. And I think it helps if they're big drinkers. <laughs> because can I have another? Exactly. And then he does it again. Exactly. Which is why he does it again. This is why no one and it reinforces this it. Is okay. Why, so here's how to work on your memory. This is why no one okay. remembers us there. Right. I don't drink enough. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Armand always remembers our drinks. Um, all right. Number one. Here's some the ditch. Wait a minute. It says basically stitch ditch the bad study habits you learned in school. Yeah. Okay. First, say goodbye to all nighters of cramming. Um, and, uh, in, um, in a series of experiments, students listened to stories and then took a test of how much information they remembered an hour later. Their recall spiked by 10 to 30% if they had been randomly assigned to sit and do nothing in a dark, quiet room for a few minutes right after hearing the story. Okay. Right. It says your mind needs to rest. Okay. All right. So you need to be able to, you know, absorb a bunch of information and then rest. Let your mind digest it. Okay. Um, this is especially true for people with memory difficulties. When the same experiment was done with patients who had suffered strokes and other neurological injuries, resting improved their recall to 
from 7%. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit counterintuitive. You just shut down and let it uh, marinate. Okay? Second, don't bother with rereading or highlighting. Mm -hmm. Try something active. Quiz yourself. I know you love that. Yes. But I think, that, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I think uh, you're often reading this stuff and you say, yeah, 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 I got it. It's not until you actually have to put it to use mm -hmm. that you know if you've got it. And once you do that, mm -hmm. it kind of solidifies it in your brain as well. Third, similar thing, tell somebody. Mm -hmm. When you have to explain it to well, somebody... That's, that, that, that's the only way, in my mind, you know if you understand something, if you can explain it. And if you understand it, you memorize it. So. Right. Once you, you know, once you have tried to articulate it, put it into words, uh, then you know. So th those are some tips. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, you got yes. it. And, and we let's yes. go to a dark room and see. <laughs> uh, all right. So Henry Block died uh, this week. Henry Block of H and R Block. Uh, so everyone's heard of H and R Block, the tax preparers. And what's interesting about it is this, and it's just it's an illustration of how much serendipity. I mean, not to be flip. What? But he did pass away after tax day. All right. Right. But the point is, that he's out of the business for quite some time. My, my point is this. I'm sure he still feels in his mind, he's got to get through April 15th, then he can let go. Well, I'll tell you why the answer to that is no. And here's why. Because first of all, he was never interested in accounting. He never liked accounting. He didn't know that much about accounting. Uh, and number two is he didn't really uh, have much to do with these tax returns. And I'll explain that in a minute. So he and his brother are looking to start a business after the war. And they're thinking about what to do, and they decide to do a bookkeeping business. And they offer a variety of, of uh, services to businesses. And the last one, inconsequential, is tax preparation. And they get to a point, they're doing medium business, and they're going to jettison the tax stuff. And they're dealing with an advertising agent who's working with them to promote their business. And he says, you know, the tax stuff, that might have something to it. And they say, what do you mean? He says, well, let's try it. Let's run an ad. And they run an ad which says, Tax returns, $5. Sounds like a Peanuts cartoon. Tax returns, $5, right? Mm -hmm. He gets a call the next morning. There are people lined up outside the door around the block to have them do their tax returns. And they find out by accident that tax returns is the business. And suddenly, they do a complete 180, and they become, by accident, a tax return preparation firm, and their that business is only enhanced as the tax code becomes more complicated and people really need their services. So that's point one. But point two is he's interested in selling the business. You know, they had a good idea. It's doing what it does. Again, he's not interested in accounting. They go to sell the business. He can't work out exactly the terms on which to sell the business, right? So what does he end up doing? He ends up licensing the business. Well, make a long story short, they develop this franchise model. Mm -hmm. That's probably the principal uh, you know, uh, departure from normal practice that H&R Block did. That's the most original thing they did, develop this franchise model. In so terms of that... Uh, all these thousands of thousands of taxpayers were franchises. Okay, he didn't have so to run them. normal for food businesses, but not normal for book. I don't think they were normal for anybody at that time. I think he was a pioneer in franchising. And, and that's what got them going, and that's what made them the huge name they were today. So he's a franchiser more than he's anything about taxes. They make a zillion dollars. The name is ubiquitous. 
and his name is associated with it. So, again, a lot of serendipity there and the big discovery, not taxes, but franchising, um, and turned out to be an amazing business. Okay. You had the book report. Book report. Well, several things about books. All right. Yes. One uh, in the um, first section of the Times today was a um, scandalous discussion <laughs> of yeah. a theft of rare books. Yeah. Theft of rare books in Pittsburgh, right. PA. It turns out at the Carnegie um, Library, that is the public library uh, system of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, the rare book. I think it's called the Oliver Room, uh, had an archivist for 30 years, yeah. Gregory Pryor. And uh, turns out he was walking off with rare books uh, for 30 years and selling them to a man down the street, a book, a rare bookseller and appraiser, John Schulman, and so he would just, so Prior is the only archivist at the Oliver Room. Yeah, you'd like to think okay. you can trust that guy. And yeah. uh, so he just, you know, he's not even hiding the books. He's not, he's not even really smuggling. He's just walking out, you know, with, the walking books. out with the books, walking down the street, yeah. um, being paid up front by Shulman. And, and then Shulman is selling the books around the world. They, they find a um, rare the Geneva Bible. It was a Bible translated into um, English by, uh, uh, I guess, um, pilgrims who had left and run away to Geneva mm -hmm. during, you know, the Mary Stuart uh, times when it was not good to be a Protestant in England. And uh, so, um, anyway, it's a it's a very rare book. Yeah. Uh, and it's found... Well, I can see how you get caught that way. And so <laughs> it's something like $8 million worth of books had disappeared yeah. over time. And he apologized, and he's a prior. <laughs> he, he feels very badly I'm, I'm sure about it. I'm sure he, he does. He said uh, he loves those books. He just got greedy. He had kids to put through college. Well, there you and, go. And... Uh, Took a bad turn, uh, but it took is a bad. A little, took many bad turns over yeah, it's thirty a years. Bit shocking. It's, yeah, it, it's incredibly shocking it that uh, somebody with that much responsibility uh, for these uh, precious items uh, just did that. Yeah. All right. Uh, but anyway, and so that made me think about you know the books. Uh, I'm looking for books to read. And the Wall Street Journal had some interesting suggestions this week. I'm just going to mention them because I can't really figure out what some of them are actually about. Yeah. But they sound intriguing. There's a review of a book uh, called The Absent Hand by Susanna Lessard. L-E-S-S-A-R-D. Okay. It seems to be... Uh, the subtitle is Reimagining Our American Landscape, okay? And it seems to be a subjective Whitman-esque meditation on the way we live today. All our physical surroundings, including the city, are landscapes, writes Susanna Lassard. Now, I can't quite make head nor tails about what it really is, this meditation, but the review is by Witold Rybczynski, who is a famous 
uh, professor yeah. of architecture. He's worked, among other places, at uh, Penn University. He wrote a wonderful biography of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, so I kind of trust him. So if he the... says this is interesting, maybe it is interesting. Right. So what's the name of the book? The book is The Absent Hand. Yeah, okay. Then there's another book, also a little bit strange, called Lotharingia. And this is by Simon Windsor. Okay. And uh, this review is by Michael Gora. I don't know him, but this is about the little sliver of land between France and Germany. Okay. And uh, you know, in there is uh, Flanders, etc. We've, uh, you know, we appreciate artists from that area, chocolate from that area, wine from that area. And, you know, going from the North Sea all the way down to central Italy. So that would include Alsace, etc. Um, it comes from the back in the days of Charlemagne. When Charlemagne dies, his grandsons divvy up the land. One gets France, one gets Germany, and in the middle, Lothar, grandson Lothar, gets what's left. And for hundreds of years after that, uh, France, Germany, you know, they're trying, well, Lotharingia is trying hard not to be absorbed by France or Germany. Um, And so, again, Apparently, it's a very well-written book. Uh, Simon Winder is uh, an editor who says he's learned everything he knows by editing other people's books. And uh, the reviewer says, At his best, Mr. Winder makes me laugh out loud, and anyone who grew up with Monty Python will feel at home in his pages. Okay. So, I don't know. a history book that makes you laugh out loud but it's still legit. Uh, so, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe I'll read that. I'm also, I'm about to read, I think, The Beneficiary by Jenny Scott. Okay. And well, that's the story of a family uh, from the main line in Philadelphia. And it's her family. It's uh, her great grandfather established this 800-acre estate. Yeah. Um, which they all grew up on. It has all these different houses. So it's the story of her family. Some of it includes the um, you know journals written by her father. Her grandmother, they say, was probably the model for the Catherine Hepburn uh, character in, in Philadelphia story. story. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it sounds like an interesting family. It sounds like a pretty good read. So there you have it: Absent Hand, Lotharingia, and the Beneficiary. Okay. All right, so finally, uh, John Havlicek died. So who's John Havlicek? John Havlicek was the uh, A-star of the Boston Celtics uh, basketball team over two different eras, One, uh, each era being named after the center of the team, the first era being the Bill Russell era, the second being the Dave Cowens era. That would be in the late 60s and early 70s. He was on eight, count them, eight Celtics championship teams world champion eight times but that not only that in college when he played for ohio state his team went to the championship game all three times sophomore junior and senior year and they won it once uh the guy's always been always was 
a champion. He was in, in many people's, he's a six 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 seven small forward. He was never the number one star of the team, but in Bill Russell's view, he was the best basketball player Bill Russell had ever seen. Um, it's kind of an interesting background and story. He came from a town near Wheeling, West Virginia, his very small town. His next-door neighbor were the Necros. Do you remember Joe and Phil Necro? One has a house near uh, near Steed, I guess. Uh, and uh, they became uh, baseball pitchers, players. baseball players, okay. on a Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah. It's amazing they have those kind of athletes in that town. They played with him on the basketball team. Uh, and his Havlicek was, you know, not a great shooter, but a great team player, constantly moving the ball, great defender, could drive to the basket and score, could defend anyone. Uh, matter of fact, it's funny. There's a picture here of Havlicek being guarded by Bill Russell. Everyone talked about how difficult it was to guard Havlicek. I remember in Bill Bradley's book, he said, and everyone asked, isn't a Havlicek the toughest guy to guard? And he said, no. The toughest guy to guard was someone else. And I'll tell you right now, it's a guy you went to business school with. According to Bill Bradley, the toughest man to guard was Jim McMillan, who played for Columbia and you went to business school with. But in any event, uh, Havlicek uh, was just a fantastic player. And, and so much so that, you know, some people were struck by the fact that he died. And he's, there's a pantheon of Boston Celtics uh, players, but, and they're, that way were the most successful basketball team. That pantheon is Bob Cousy uh, and uh, Larry Bird and Bill Russell and John Havlicek. So it's kind of a big deal. But the question that comes up is a question that was put to Havlicek uh, when he was older. And uh, they said, how do you think you'd do today? Because the game has changed, perhaps it's more athletic and so on. And he says, uh, I certainly think we could compete given the same latitude as the modern players. In other words, being that the referees don't call anything like traveling or anything like that. He said, we'd go crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the truth of the matter is they could. I mean, Havlicek in his prime could easily play in the NBA. I think Granger made the comparison to Mono Ginobili, who was a great NBA player. And Havlicek was that kind of player, but, but better. Mm-hmm. Bigger, better rebounder, and a better player. Uh, and there's something to be said for basketball skills. I think if Bill Russell was on the Nets today, the Nets would win the world championship. I mean, these guys could play with the guys today, the top players. So in any event, uh, Havlicek was an all-time great and all-time favorite of all the sports writers. And, uh, he passed at the age of 79. So I think that's all we have today. Uh, is that right? Right. All right. So good, uh, happy birthday, Zeke, coming up. And we'll see you next week. With Tamsin and Dan. Read the paper. A troop of strolling players are we. Not stars like LB Mayers are we. But just a simple band who roams about the land, dispensing falderall frivolity. Mere folk who give distraction are we. News theater give attraction are we. Oh, shut up, Sam. But just a crazy group. That never ceases to troop Around the map of little Italy Well, here we go back to the home country again We open in Venice We next play Verona Then on to Cremona Lots of laughs in Cremona, hey boy Our next jump in Parma That dopey, mopey menace Then Mantua, then Padua Then we open again Where? We open in Venice We next play Verona to Cremona. Lots of bars in Cremona. Our next jump in Parma. That fearless, cheerless
Paris menace, then Mantua, then Padua, then we open again. Where? 